Welcome back to Mark's Madness, now part of Chunkaluta. Oh, I gotta stop that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we do not have Shikmani 2 here today, and clearly uh, my technological, technomological uh, illiteracy is, uh, has reared its ugly head. Well, to make up for it, you get two intro sounds. <laughs> <laughs> you get double the intro sounds. Now we're just selling that. It's a marketing gimmick. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Um, I'm David. Um, I'm Prez. And we are continuing on our Gramsci reader. Um, when we do continue on, we'll be on page 70 or slide 71, um, which is uh, class and transcendence in Italian history is the fourth section of the socialism and Marxism from 1917 to 1918. Uh, before we get to that, uh, we usually do current events. Now, obviously there's all kinds of stuff going on, like the global mean, Oh, you know what? We should define that for people too. Cause I don't think people understand that. So let's understand. the last, the last week, the global mean temperature uh, has been higher than it's been in the last hundred thousand years, as in like, the record hottest seven days was the last week. And for those of you doing math at home, a week is seven days long. That's every day of the week. Um, that's bad. Yeah. Um, and so like the way that this works too, is that this is the global average, which mm-hmm. the way averages work is not everywhere at once, but we're seeing like 55 degrees in certain places, 55 Celsius, mm-hmm. which is just, yeah, I don't want to uh, talk about this anymore. <laughs> well, okay. But just so people understand, because they'll, they'll probably say like, oh, these are the hottest seven days in the last hundred thousand years. And, you know, of course, right wingers um, like to take our, our idea of critical thinking and then spin it into the most reactionary, dumbed down, context free way possible. Right. Just like their their anti-vaxxing thing is, oh, now you're not suddenly against big pharma or whatever. You know, if they oversimplify things and make it overly generic, this is an old like anti-authoritarianism type dig they do and so they're going to be like well how do you know the temperature a hundred thousand years ago and and you know what is this what does this mean the temperature is the hottest it's summer or whatever the hell you know they did this with like a global warming i feel pretty cool right now it's you know this is the temperature of the entire like everywhere on the planet averaged together as as a mean calculation so season doesn't matter um, it's going to come out to about like what 61, 62 degrees normally. It's a little over 63 for the last entire week, which is just terrifying. Um, and obviously, you know, that means that every global mean temperature on record does not match this. And the um, biological and mathematical evidence we have where we can trace back strong estimates of temperatures up to 100,000 years has never touched this high. So obviously we don't know the exact temperature 999,650 years ago or whatever, but we have strong evidence that we can go off kind of the same way as we know about things in space. And um, even with that, even if you just go with the hard temperatures, we know uh, this is the hottest seven days on record. Going um, all the way back to... 5000 bc kind of (laughs) yeah um (laughs) since since this stuff was measured and recorded in in every location that has it you know um so with that said 
there is one other current event, and it's a little more good news, right? And that's uh, the SAG-AFTA uh, strike, right? They're they're joining uh, the WGA in striking, and they're they're taking it very seriously. Uh, you were saying, Prez, that uh, the Barbie and Oppenheimer like walked out of a press conference. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, the British premiere, I think, for Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Let me see real quick. Yeah, the Oppenheimer cast has left the UK premiere to join mm-hmm. the SAG after a strike. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, that's really good. So they're they're not producing anything new, and they're not doing any of the marketing stuff. And and these movies do big marketing stuff, right? Some of it gets a little you know grotesque. This is where like. <laughs> people's interest in people's education level usually comes out from class. You know, it's not like everybody sits there and goes, I'm going to do propaganda. Propaganda is usually like leaning on people's interests and stuff. I mean, we're talking about that with cultural hegemony with Gramsci now. And a lot of celebrities are like, woo, the most moral thing I could do is support the troops. And so they're like, make a superhero movie and like, you know, go to like USOs and clap and say how great it was working with the military on the movie or, you know, whatever the, the shit when they're in, and, and it works as propaganda, but it's also just movie marketing. And that's just one small example. That's very jingoistic, but there's all kinds of movie marketing like that, right? They do big premieres, big press conferences, big, all kinds of, and, and all these events. Now it sounds like they're, they're not participating in. Um, so this is, this is a big deal. It's, it's bringing things to a halt and it's in response directly to executives um, like the CEO of Disney and, and others uh, having leaked out that, that they're trying to very literally starve people out and people think of big stars and it's important for the big stars to stick with smaller actors, like, you know, all in this together kind of idea. You see this with like sports uh, league uh, unions and, and stuff like that. You know, the big star players got to, got to stand with uh, the fringe, you know, roster guys that, that barely make it to the show. But most of the people are, are those fringe actors, those fringe writers uh, that are in the union that are just scraping by and this could deeply and quickly affect them. Um, so everybody standing together in solidarity is very, very important here. Um, and there's, you know, thousands of, of people that are affected by this, not just a couple hundred, you know, super rich people. Um, so this is, is very important and very good to see. Um, do you have anything else to add to that, Prez? Uh, no, not really. Just that it got announced, it got leaked today that the Bob Iger or whatever the fuck. <laughs> of Disney he, CEO. He renegotiated yeah. his contract and he's like raising his yearly bonus by like five times oh jesus <laughs> in the middle of this <laughs> really good fucking timing Iger. real good oh, da- yeah. goddamn timing um, so with that said uh we're gonna move back into the gramsci reader um press do you want to start us off on on class and transients in italian history sure class and transients should we define intransigence absolutely so according to the internet, intransigence is the refusal to change one's views or to agree about something. So class intransigence and Italian I, history. I do like the idea of, of according to the internet, like we're going to do MLA notation and just parentheses <laughs> the internet. <laughs> That's how I've been writing my dissertation. Just <laughs> Google Scholar. <laughs> Section one, class, state, parties. What does the state represent from the socialist point of view? 
The state is the economic political organization of the bourgeois class. The state is the bourgeois class in its modern concrete expression. The bourgeois class is not a unified entity outside the state. As a result of the working of free competition, new groups of capitalist producers are constantly forming to fulfill the regime's economic capacity. Each one of these groups yearns to remove itself from the bloody struggle of competition through recourse to monopoly. The state's function is to find a juridical settlement to internal class disputes, to, to clashes between opposed interests, thereby unifies different groupings and gives the social gives the class a solid and united external appearance. Competition between groupings is concentrated at the point of government of state power. The government is the prize for the strongest bourgeois party or grouping. The latter's strength wins for it the right to regulate state power, to turn it in any particular direction, and to manipulate it at any time in accordance with its economic and political program. Uh, Just a quick aside, both Althusser and Palancis go and pretty much turn this uh, paragraph into like multiple books. Uh, I, I think that's where, good. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I think people get this. It, it, Marxism is, is a philosophy that gives us the building blocks to go off. We talked about that before, right? It's not a religion just to, to read from and think is infallible and, you know, we, we, we've heard the term revisionism, but that's that's fundamentally revising Marxism away from the tools that that he's given us in that sense, you know, kind of like what Bernstein did. Um, but revising Marx to better understand it or to apply it to material conditions or to update it with more material evidence is enhancement to, to Marxism. It's technically a revision, but it's not like revising Marx. It's 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 bringing Marx to what you need, right? Or Marxism, if you're going by other, you know, Marxist work like Lenin or Nkrumah or, you know, whomever, right? Um, Gramsci. Gramsci, <laughs> obviously, who we're reading. Um, <laughs> which it, I like Gramsci because he's, he's interesting. I, I feel like it's almost in between where you get like, um, you know, you can either have, uh, oh, what is, what is the book um, by uh, Matt Kennard? about aid and stuff like that and and how that's that's a whole like basically the the precursor to the wto and the real function and legality of the wto and aid groups and stuff or you get like jakarta method by vincent blevins like that's a historic block that directly applies you know now but it's not really a work of theory although it, it can be um but it's not it's not intended to that and versus marx is a pure work of theory and it's very simplified gramsci sits there in the middle and like makes us make sense to bridge, you know, these, these realities and this historical facts that do matter and are the evidence we're building the theory from, from the broad theory where there's tons of intricacies and, and tons of, of, you know, clashing interests and, and how they line up. So when Marx says like this class is united and the state is the tool of the class, like this is how it's the tool of the class. It doesn't mean that, that a bourgeoisie state doesn't serve the bourgeoisie against you, isn't a source of force, doesn't have cops and military and laws to keep the hierarchical structure in place, just as Marx described. That's very, very true, but it's not as straightforward as that. It's not like a Democrat and a Republican, like, I, I know they do kind of, you know, the tip their little champagne glasses and party together more than people think, but it's not like, you know, they don't 
hate each other, compete each other, compete with each other. Same thing with corporations and, and things like that. They, they are competing. It's just that their interests line up and that they've constructed a state over time um, from collective actions to collectively administer, you know, their fights and not let their, their economic structure get toppled from their competition um, and, and keep us down in that process. And, and this is good about, you know, dealing with, Hey, this is the reality, right? Like, it's it's not like a formality where everybody signs on and consciously joins together. It's just an amalgamation of interest. That's what a class is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, before I get back into it, just so Palantis is three books that talk specifically about class factions or fractions that Gramsci just described. Um, and how they relate to fascism in the demand for monopolization, fascism and dictatorship, classes and contemporary capitalism, and political power and social classes. And then you have Althusser's, uh, I forget the exact title of the essay, but it's something like political and ideological state apparatus, repressive and uh, ideological state apparatuses and the state or something like that. So... If you like that specific paragraph, go check those out. Anyway. Just based on that paragraph, even though I haven't <laughs> read them, and I normally do, no investigation, no right to speak. But based on the paragraph, I, I'm going to thumbs up that recommendation. The bourgeois parties and the socialist party have utterly different attitudes to the state. The bourgeois parties are either the representatives of, of categories of producers, or they are simply a swarm of quote-unquote coachman flies I don't know what that means, actually. Um, I'm assuming it's just like flies that buzz around. Uh, yeah, or I they think. are simply a swarm of coachman flies who make not the slightest impact on the framework of the state, but drone their speeches and suck the honey of favoritism. The Socialist Party is not a sectional, but a class organization. Its morphology is quite different from that of any other party. It can only view the state, the network, the network of bourgeois class power, as its antagonistic likeness. It cannot enter into a direct or indirect competition for the conquest of the state without committing suicide, without losing its nature, without becoming a mere political faction that is estranged from the historical, the historical activity of the proletariat without turning into a swarm of quote-unquote coachman flies on the hunt for a bowl of blancmang uh, in which to get stuck and perish ingloriously. Hello, social democracy and Eurocommunism. Um, the Socialist Party does not conquer the state. It replaces it. It replaces the regime, abolishes party government, and replaces free competition by the organization of production and exchange. Next section, does Italy have a class state? Keep in mind that this is at a time where like Italy as we know it today in, in the nation state form has only existed for like 50, 60 years. In discussions and polemics, words are too frequently superimposed on historical reality. 
When speaking of Italy, we use words like capitalists, proletarians, states, parties, as if they represented social entities which have which had reached the peak of the historical development or a level of maturity comparable to that achieved in the economically advanced countries. But in Italy, capitalism is in its infancy, and the law is in no way adapted to the real situation. The law is a modern excrescence on an ancient edifice. It is not the product of economic evolution, but of international political mimicry, of the intellectual evolution of jurisprudence, not of the instruments of labor. So this is essentially saying the Italian capitalists are trying to copy the British and the Americans yeah, rather than make their own domestic indigenous capitalism, if we want to. Which that. makes sense. I really like that the law is a modern excrescence on, on an ancient edifice talking about that. <laughs> it's like they're, they're literally calling Italian law like a wart on the ass of whatever's left of the Roman Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Giuseppe Prezzolini drew attention to this recently in connection with the polemic over quote-unquote democracy. Behind a facade of democratic institutions, the Italian state has retained the substance and framework of a despotic state. The same can be said of France. There exists a bureaucratic centralist regime founded on the tyrannical Napoleonic system with the express aim of crushing and containing any spontaneous driver movement. Foreign affairs are conducted in the highest secrecy. Not only are discussions not public, but even the terms of treaties are kept from those whom they nevertheless affect. The army, parenthesis, until the war made the antiquated system untenable, and parenthesis, and he's talking about World War I and how everything was fucked there. The army had a career structure. It was not the nation in arms. There was a state religion supported financially and in other ways by the state. There is no separation of church and state, nor equality of all religions. Schools are either non-existent or the teachers who come from a restricted number of needy folk, given the paltriness of the wages, are not equal to the demands of national education. The suffrage was restricted right up until the last elections, so like 1916. And even today is still far from giving the, giving the nation the capacity to express its will. Free competition, the essential principle of the capitalist bourgeoisie, has not yet touched the most important aspects of national affairs. So we have a position where the political forms are mere arbitrary superstructures. They lack any effectiveness and achieve nothing. The seats of power are still confused and interdependent. There are no large parties organized by the agrarian and industrial bourgeoisies. Now, this is, I don't know what this sign is, but it's its a paragraph bookended by, uh, like, my, the alligator symbols. Yeah, my my uh, programmer brain is like, oh, this is a markup language block. <laughs> <laughs> Just hide this when you're coding and see if anyone finds it. So parliament is in reality subordinated to the executive power. It has no effective capacity of control. 
the parliamentary deputies are no more than the messenger boys of local groups of peasants or the third estate who who go up to the capital who go up to the capital to request particular privileges as in a full-blooded feudal regime not to establish the rule of law hence the class state in which the effectiveness of the principle of free competition culminates with great parties representing the vast interests of the different sectors of production do not exist, does not exist. What has existed has been the dictatorship of one man, Giolitti. The, uh, the GI is like a Giolitti. Um, the dictatorship of one man, the representative of the narrow political interests of Piedmont, who in order to keep the country united has imposed on Italy a centralized and despotic system of colonial domination. And here's he, here he's talking about what he calls the, the Northern colonization of the South. The system is collapsing. New bourgeois forces have arisen and are growing stronger. Ever more insistently, they are demanding recognition of their interests. Interventionism is a contingent phenomenon and so is pacifism. The war will not last forever. But what is in imminent danger is the despotic uh, Geolidin uh, state. The entire mass of parasitic interests encrusted upon this old state and the old enfeebled bourgeoisie, which sees its super privileges threatened by the agrarian, the agitation of bourgeois youth wanting its place in the government, wanting to be part of the free play of political competition. Provided no new event cuts off its evolution, this new bourgeois generation will undoubtedly rejuvenate the state and throw out all traditional droves. Throw out all the traditional droves. I'm assuming this is a bad translation of dress. For a democratic state, for a democratic state is not the product of a kind heart or a liberal education. It is a necessity of life for large-scale production, for busy exchange, for the concentration of of the population in modern capitalist cities. So, yeah. So again, very good section. There's some an interesting things, you know, in there. First off, it was kind of funny because you were talking about the coachman flies, and we didn't know what that that meant. And I was like, I wonder if that's an old expression that I could look up and, and all I could find was fishing lures. So I don't know what was going on in that <laughs> translation. We're just shut up and let the book read its flies. that get trapped in, in gelatin stuff. Um, <laughs> but uh, the other thing is, I, I think is really interesting. This is talking about a state in, in infancy, right? Because states develop over time, obviously. Um, so some of this isn't totally applicable or parallel. Like I talked about, you know, interventionalism versus isolationism, um, you know, kind of being transigent, you know, not being something that's a constant, whereas once a state is met, you know, a, a certain peak, if it's a capitalist state and it's practicing its its imperialism, it's constantly interventionalist because it has to keep up that that economically. But I really thought it was interesting the parallels between this and Napoleon and, and the French Revolution, and, and it really lays out how militaristic Italy was and how, you know, Mussolini then could, could later give rise to that. Right. Um, because, you know, when things, when things go through revolution or they're, they're in this state of this, this budding 
capitalist state, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that's in flux where there's there's a little bit of a power vacuum and that power vacuum can be seized on very easily by reaction. It's where we get the the idea that we should know inherently as revolutionaries and from so, so, several other examples. But I always think of Kwame Ture um, with it where, you know, the revolution is not about destroying, 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 right? Destruction is necessary to build something in its place, but the revolution is about building and creating um, because when you are left without a state that's just a vacuum for reaction to siphon up and it can come in different progressively worse phases depending on how that history plays out well we're going to see later that gramsci uh talks about more in depth that we uh hear every once in a while and then we kind of don't talk about too much the the historically progressive character of an individual or of a movement which is different than things being progressively worse or anything so in that case we would have napoleon being a historically progressive character because he is seen and this is ignoring the the monarch backlash later on um he is seen as bringing in bourgeois revolution to europe so when he conquered italy he undid all of the feudal relations of the state at that time. He was also the one who uh, banned the ghettoization of Jews in Italy. Um, But then there was that counter-revolution afterwards where he was defeated and all of that nonsense. So then we can see with the, the Italian unification wars with Garibaldi and everyone that that was the completion of the, uh, what do you call it, of the bourgeois revolution in Italy, and then everything Gramsci's talking about now is the consolidation of the state under that. So Mussolini, after <laughs> after the uh, the uh, unification wars, the Pope excommunicated literally every Italian leader afterwards. Um, because they took all of the papal states and Mussolini was the one who cut a deal with the Pope and said, we'll give you Vatican city and you can have your own independent country. If you don't excommunicate me. (laughs) Okay. Um, I forget the name of that treaty, but it it was like one of the main first treaties uh, with Mussolini where he was trying to get the the agrarian feudal semi-feudal capitalists on his side because the pope all of his support was still in the peasantry and in the in the uh, rural areas. So anyway, next section, the function of the proletariat. Just as the socialist party, the organization of the proletarian class cannot enter into competition for conquest of the government without losing its intrinsic value and turning into a swarm of coachman flies. <laughs> this is just going to be the metaphor. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of fishing lures getting stuck in jello. Nice. I can't imagine that, like, back in 1920s Italy, they were using artificial fishing lures. (laughs) No, I mean, it's clearly talking about a bug. I'm just joking because that's all. all. I mean, it was was talking about getting getting, uh, 
uh, stuck in in blancmange, which is uh, obviously yeah. that's that's like a cream jello thing, right? So, and that's something flies, but it's very much a fly. Um, talked about getting stuck in, in honey and things like that too. So I just don't know this term coachman fly. And when Apparently you go research this it, it was invented in the 1800s. So oh. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? I'm just, I'm just going to have to get over it. I'm, I'm going to uh, guess there was a common turn of phrase coachman fly. Cause otherwise, you know, this is a translation, right? They chose coachman fly based on, on translated. Yeah. So the translator made that choice. So there had to be some kind of common expression that was still hanging around and it clearly isn't fishing lures, but also common expressions, even stuff with similar brand names. You can usually look up and it's, I can't find it on the internet. So who, who knows how, how common of a turn of phrase that is. Anyway, I'm just going to get over this and stop going on this tangent. Every time I see this phrase, uh, (laughs) just as the socialist party, the organization of the proletarian class cannot enter into competition for conquest of the government without losing its intrinsic value and turning into a swarm of coachman flies. So too, it cannot collaborate with any organized bourgeois parliamentary grouping without causing harm, without creating pseudo facts that will have to be undone and corrected. The political decadence, which class collaboration brings is due to the spasmodic expansion of a bourgeois party which is not satisfied with merely clinging to the state, but also makes use of the party, which is antagonistic to the state. It thus becomes it thus becomes a hercoservus, a historical monster devoid of will or particular aims, concerned only with the possession of the state, to which it is encrusted like rust. State activity is reduced to mere legalities, to the formal settling of disputes, and never touches the substance. The state becomes a Roma caravan held together by bits and pieces of wood, a mastodon on four tiny wheels. (laughs) Um, Uh, And... um for the the Herkosovus, it's it's it, it was pretty well clear. It's the ancient beast. It's just a billy goat. <laughs> it's 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 half horse, half goat, ancient thing. So just that's kind of funny. Of, it's like a, a lamer uh, minotaur. Yeah, yeah, kind of, <laughs> very lame. <laughs> the mule of minotaurs. Uh. If it wishes to maintain and secure its position as the executive organ of the proletariat, the Socialist Party must itself observe and observe and make everyone else respect the method of the fiercest intransigence. And if the bourgeois parties wish to form a government from their own forces, they will have to evolve, put themselves in contact with the country, bring their sectional disputes to an end, and acquire a distinctive political and economic structure. If they are unwilling to do so, then, since no party is capable of standing on its own, a permanent and dangerous crisis will arise. A crisis in which the proletariat, firm and tightly knit, will accelerate its rise in evolution. Intransigence is not inertia, since it forces others to move and act. It is not based on stupidities, as La Stampa so cleverly insinuates. 
It is a principled policy, the policy of a proletariat that is conscious of its revolutionary mission as accelerator of the capitalist evolution of society. As a reagent clarifying the chaos of bourgeois production and politics and forming modern states to carry through their natural mission, mission as dismantlers of the feudal institutions that still, after the collapse of the former societies, survive and hinder historical development. So this is just saying that uh, capitalism still requires feudal elements and to fully get rid of feudalism, we have to get rid of capitalism. Intransigence is the only way in which the class struggle can be expressed. It is the only evidence we have that history is developing and creating solid, substantial achievements, not quote-unquote privileged, arbitrary quote-unquote syntheses, cooked up by mutual agreement between a thesis and an antithesis who have thrown in their lots together like the pro- proverbial fire and water. So th- this is a, a dig at, at Hegel's um, description of dialectics then, right? Where, where you're going to have this idealistic, like if we, I, I hate the idea in, in dialectics when they go like, you know, um, thesis antithesis synthesis right because that that the idea is like well you have two sides and you have to come together and figure it out based on the contradiction and that's not really what it is the contradiction is something that causes the two sides and to resolve a contradiction in order to eliminate in order to for it to no longer be a contradiction assuming it is one to resolve assuming it's one that is not better left persistent um, you, you have to actually, you know, get rid of the contradiction, not come to, you know, a mystical agreement. That's a very idealistic way of, of looking at it. Um, or I don't know, you could also read this as like the, the idea that people are too committed to prescribed Marxism without adapting it or, or learning deeper to it. And I, I, I'm not really sure which way I'm taking that from Ramsey reading here, or if you have insight on, on what was meant here, but, uh, uh, but those are, you know, two different things you can go with. I don't, I don't think you would normally look at a Marxist dialectics though, and go uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, because that's not really, you know, the history is going to move the end of the contradiction in, in a materialist sense. Yeah. Well, so we see a lot of venom here and we see the word socialist party a lot. And this was written, it doesn't say the actual year in the book, but it was written between 1917 and 1918. And this is right as there's a huge debate ramping up between Gramsci's faction and the rest of the Socialist Party that's essentially saying, should we collaborate with the bourgeoisie to end the war and and all of that kind of stuff? What do we do after the war? Do we collaborate? And clearly Gramsci is saying, fuck off. Um but the the split between the Socialist Party and the Communist Party that Gramsci leads ha- uh, happens in 1921. So this is literally just a couple years later. Um, so this is the ramp up of that whole question and debate about how these contradictions are going to resolve themselves. Mm. Okay, well, that that's good. And then I think that does seem more like a, a dig at prescribing... Hegel's, I, and again, you know, Marx, Marx, Marx did not disavow Hegel, even if he was very snarky 
um, towards Hegel. But it, it, you know, it's it's talking about mixing up Hegel's dialectics and Marx's dialectics, and from what you're describing, then, which is how I read it when I see the synthesis, antithesis, and we're talking about Marx. Um, it also makes more sense with at the beginning because there was a, a quote about you know you cannot uh, collaborate with any organized bourgeoisie parliamentary group without causing harm, without pseudo facts that have to be undone and corrected. And that context makes that make much more sense, given that is still one of those evergreen lines that that we can apply as long as we're actually, you know, not not just like (laughs) taking the materialism out, but actually applying it properly to our situation. The supreme law of capitalist society is free competition between all social social forces. Merchants compete for markets. Bourgeois groupings compete for the government. The two classes compete for the state. Merchants seek to create monopolies behind protective legislation. Each bourgeois grouping would like to monopolize the government and to be able to make exclusive use of the spellbound energies of the class that is outside governmental competition. Intransigents are free traders. They do not want barons whether sugar and steel barons or barons in the government. The law of freedom must be allowed unrestricted operation. It is intrinsic to bourgeois activity, the chemical reagent that is continually dissolving its cadres cadres, and forcing them to improve and perfect themselves. Yeah, that would be, I would read that as cadres. Cadres. Um, Yeah, which is, is, you know, like, like, groupings that that go into battle to together or groupings of of party formations things like that so basically groupings on a a mission together the powerful anglo-saxon anglo-saxon bourgeois cadre cadres acquire their modern productive capacity through the implacable play of free competition the english state has evolved and been purged of its noxious elements elements through the free clash of bourgeois social forces that finally constituted themselves into the great historical parties, the liberals and conservatives. Indirectly from this clash, the proletariat has gained cheap bread and a substantial series of rights guaranteed by law and custom, the right to assemble, the right to strike, and individual security, which in Italy remains a chimerical myth. Uh, Chimerical is just like, an almost incoherent combination of of things. Class struggle is not a puerile dream. It is an act that is freely determined upon and it is an act that is freely determined upon and an inner necessity of the social order to obstruct its clear course arbitrarily by pre-established syntheses hatched by impenitent pipe dreamers is a puerile mistake. A historical waste of time. And just puerile is childishly silly and immature, according according to the internet. And the definition also included a picture of a child, like, sticking their thumb in their ears and sticking out their tongue. (laughs) Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm still getting the the dig here, because this, this still seems to be very much... Like what I'm reading is, is this is a dig against the idea that, you know, 
oh, you're you're being too much of a, a perfectionist. And it, I, I've heard this before about like voting for Democrats, right? Well, you have your little revolution, you know, pipe dream about going up against the U.S. Army with your little handguns or whatever. You know, the rest of us are, are voting out fascism or, or whatever the shit. So that this is a dig directly against that. Yeah, ex- exactly. The non-Geolatinian Geolitian parties, the non-Geolitian parties now in power, parentheses, quite apart from the fact of the war, which is contingency, and already prove- proving too much for the political capacity of the small nation's ruling classes, and parentheses. which is contingency and are unconsciously carrying out the task of dismantling the feudal, militaristic, despotic state that Giovanni Giolitti perpetuated in order to make it the instrument of his dictatorship. The Giolitians, Giolitians can feel the monopoly slipping from their grasp. Let them move by God, let them struggle, let them call on the country to judge. But no, they would rather make the proletariat do their moving for them, or better still, they would like to make the socialist deputies vote. So intransigence is inertia, is it? Movement, however, is never just a physical act. It is intellectual as well. Indeed, it is always intellectual before becoming physical, except for puppets on a string. Take away from the proletariat, its class consciousness, and what have you. Puppets dancing on a string. That was a strong section. I really like how that that ended, too, you know. Um, Because, yeah, if someone is moving for you, then you are a puppet on a string. I mean, we use that terminology all the time, right? Um, Being a puppet for the the ruling class. but I do like when, when philosophy breaks that down, you know, it's like, of course, moving's physical, but you got to think about what you're doing. You don't just magically walk. You go, I'm going to take a step, even if it's subconscious. I, I just looked up real quick and he was, uh, Giolitti was the prime minister five times between 1892 and 1921. Only Mussolini, uh, served more times as prime minister than him. Jeez. Um, And from 1901 to 1914, he was pretty much just the guy in charge. So he was the one who, who kind of brought Italy or Northern Italy into the modern capitalist era after, uh, you know, getting over the whole wars of unification. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, So with that, I think we can move on to section five, utopia. Uh, Political constitutions are necessarily dependent on economic structure, on forms of production and exchange. By simply enunciating this formula, many people believe they resolve every economic and political problem, believe they're in a position to impart lessons to right and to left, and to judge events with certainty, come to the conclusion, for example, that Lenin is a utopian and that 
the unfortunate Russian proletarians are prey to an utterly utopian illusion so that a terrible awakening implacably awaits them. Uh, <laughs> I like that paragraph. I'm liking a lot of these paragraphs. This is good. Just all of it. He's just the most venomous fuck. <laughs> I mean, he's not fucking around, right? Like, no. you arrogant assholes read one book and think you know everything. You know, it's basically what he's <laughs> doing, you know, to the people that, that go full, like, you know, Noam Chomsky and, and Lenin cooed the revolution shit. Um, the truth is that no two political constitutions are the same, just as no two economic structures are the same. The truth is that the formula is anything but the arid expression of a glaringly obvious natural law. Between the premises, economic structure, and the consequence, political constitution, the relations are anything but simple and direct, and the history of a people is not documented by economic facts alone. The unraveling of the causation is a complex and involved process. To disentangle it requires nothing short of a profound and wide-ranging study of every intellectual and practical activity. This sort of study is possible only after the events have settled into a definite continuity, i.e. a long, long after the facts have occurred. The academic may be able to state with, with certainty that a particular political constitution will not emerge victorious. This is the end of history. Uh, once again, fuck you, Fukuyama. Uh, let's see. And will not exist on a permanent basis unless it is attached indissolubly and intrinsically to a particular economic structure. But a statement will have no value other than as a general indication. And while the facts are actually unfolding, how could he possibly know what pattern of dependency would be established? The unknowns are more numerous than the facts which can be ascertained and verified. And every single one of these unknowns could upset the eventual conclusion. History is not a mathematical calculation. It does not possess a decimal system, a progressive enumeration of equal quantities amenable to the four basic operations, the solution of equations, and the extraction of roots. Quantity, economic structure, turns into quality because it becomes an instrument for action in men's hands. Men whose worth is seen not only in terms of the, by their weight, their size, and the mechanical energy they derive from their muscles and nerves, but in the fact that they have a mind, that they suffer, understand, rejoice, desire, and reject. And just real quick here, yep. when he's saying quality, he's essentially meaning politics. Political being versus economic being. Yeah, this is back to that the political economy is politics and the economy. They're they're interrelated type thing, you know. We've uh we've gotten into um some good discussions with that and, and I'm a little sad that this episode now uh doesn't have Shugmani two in it because there's some some obvious ties there with like homesteading and, and things like that and, and the um beginnings and continuation of of white supremacy in, in the settlement and how it's baseline economic but not purely economic right um in a proletarian revolution the unknown variable humanity is more mysterious than in any other event the common mentality of the russian proletariat as of other proletariats in general has never been studied and perhaps it was impossible to study it 
the successful or unsuccessful outcome of the revolution will give us reliable documentary evidence on its capacity to make history. For the moment, we can do nothing but wait. We got to see 70 years of that result ourselves, but Gramsci did have to wait. Um, those who do not wait, but seek to come at once to a definitive judgment, have other aims, current political aims, to be achieved among the people to whom their propaganda is directed. The assertion that Lenin is a utopian is not cultural fact, nor historical judgment. It is a political act with immediate consequences. To state so bluntly that political constitutions, etc., etc., is not a statement of doctrine, but an attempt to arouse a particular mentality to direct action one way rather than another. In life, no act remains without consequences, and to believe in one theory rather than another has its own particular impact on action. Even an error leaves traces of itself to the extent that its acceptance and promulgation can delay, but certainly not prevent, the attainment of an end. This is a proof that it is not the economic structure which directly determines political activity, but rather the way in which that structure and the so-called laws which govern its development are interpreted. These laws have nothing in common with natural laws. Even granting that the natural laws too have no objective, factual existence, but are the constructs of our intelligence designed to facilitate study and teaching. Events do not depend on the will of a single individual, nor on that of a numerous group. They depend on the wills of great many people, revealed through their doing or not doing certain acts, and through their corresponding intellectual attitudes. And they depend on the knowledge a minority possesses concerning those wills, and the minority's capacity to channel them more or less towards a common aim, after having incorporated them within the powers of the state. Why do great majority of individuals perform only certain actions? Because they have no social goal, other than the preservation of their own physiological and moral integrity. It therefore comes they adapt circumstances and mechanically repeat certain gestures, which through their own experience or through the education they have received, the outcome of others' experience, have proved themselves to be suitable for attaining the desired goal, survival. The similarity in the activity of the majority induces a similarity in its effects. So giving a certain structure to economic activity, there arises a concept of law. Only the pursuit of a higher goal can destroy this adaptation to the environment. And the human goal is no longer mere survival, but a particular standard of survival. Then greater efforts are expanded, and depending on the dissemination of the higher human goal, the environment is successfully transformed and new hierarchies are established. These hierarchies are different from those that currently exist to regulate the relations between individuals and the state and gradually come to replace them on a permanent basis as the higher human goal is more generally attained. This part seems a little more like a dig against anarchists and, and doing like the all hierarchy is bad and everyone just wants power without asking like how that's going to play out or what people want power for type thing. Um. I also really in this section think because it's talking about, you know, humans, one goal is survival, but there's also more than survival. And he talks about, you know, attaining a certain uh, moral, where was that preservation of their physiological and moral integrity, right? And preservation of your moral integrity 
there's, I'm trying to remember who was the Brazilian socialist who wrote the article, basically on Western culture and martyrdom and trying to be perfect and how that can be manipulated. So when you get in situations like the war, everyone's tired of hearing about where both sides are wrong, <laughs> where, you know, disseminating detail or, you know, clarifying on detail. I always use disseminating wrong, clarifying details and breaking apart lies and propaganda, you know, doesn't necessarily mean like you have some great support or think some, you know, other side is pure and good. You just see the motivations and their effects and you're trying to do the right thing. But when people have this, like meeting this moral integrity, you're always looking to be the martyr, the saint. And so forget the outcome of your actions, forget where your politics lie, forget that you're, you know, uh, in the U S or whatever Western country, and you should be worried about your country's actions rather than the, the, the rights and wrongs of other countries, um, when going into these, these conflicts, you get, oh, this person's bad. Therefore, the invasion's justified, or I oppose it, but they're bad. Are you really defending them without thinking of the effects on that, right? Which we run into all the time with defending, you know, actually existing socialism, actually existing anti-imperialist countries, uh, existing peerless countries who have conflicts with the West uh, in opposition to hegemony or to just spread the truth and be anti-war. Um, you always run into that, that kind of, you know, morality where people would rather be wrong, but tell themselves it was understandable. It's what everyone said. Uh, then, you know, stop it, it, or, or be, be right and not dare, you know, support the bad one. Um, then stop these wars then then oppose the tangible wrong that they can see and, and do something about. And it's how a lot of propaganda works. Right. So I, I again, I think there's a lot packed into this. Um, and actually it was like a weird stopping point because we've been stopping at sections, but we've got a few pages left in this section and we're kind of getting close to time. So I think I'm going to stop it there. If you're okay with that Prez. Yeah, that's fine with me. Okay. Next time we'll finish this section. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> you are uh, really learning firsthand how uh, we do not read quickly on Mark's Madness. No, that's fine. <laughs> Gramsci especially is like fucking dense. Yeah, and like, and every sentence means something. Mm-hmm. And you can expand on that sentence and and. And, or you can, you know, bring context to that sentence and what Gramsci was dealing with, or sometimes you're just, there's big words and, and, or weird expressions, and you're just trying to hammer out what the heck they mean so that we understand the theory. Uh, and all those things are kind of, of coming together and slowing us down a bit, but we're, we're doing good. So with that, um, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books, or this has been Mark Madness, part of Chunkaluta. We read books. A uh, number of ways you can get a hold of us uh, through, gmail or twitter um at chunkaluta 1973 or at marks madness pod or same handles at gmail.com uh we also have a marks madness discord um which you can join that's that's public there is also a uh, chunkaluta discord which you can get to through the patreon or by by invite for specific reasons um and and you can get a hold of us there for a little more day-to-day -day questions um or just you know, general chat and input. Um, also, you know, of course going on, uh, and this is through either the Patreon, which is also what Shungmani2 
lives on um, and and takes care of a baby with. <laughs> Hence why they're not here today. Um, and um, also is uh, something that is used for you know winter drives uh, for warming houses on on Pine Ridge Reservation, as well as you know, uh, other fundraisers like a fundraiser that will, I believe be annual now for bringing people to Sundance, um, and feeding people and picking up trash at Sundance in the summer. So summer and winter drives there, uh, as well as other causes as, as they, they appear and are needed. Um, and so, you know, we will have GoFundMe's in the show notes. I believe there would be either for, uh, next winter drive or for, I believe Sundance is, is over now. Um, show money to be better with that. I'm so bad with these plugs, uh, but there'll be a GoFundMe link for one of those in the show notes. Um, you know, strongly ask for support. Um, and I think that's it from our end. Any plugs for you, Prez? Nope. Just okay. listen to the minion if you haven't. All right. Well, this has been Mark's Madness Pod, part of Chunkaluta. We read books. My name's David. I'm Prez. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. See ya.